This is Jocko Podcast number 42 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Now, in podcast number 11, we brought on Leif Babin, who was the Charlie Platoon commander. Charlie Platoon was a part of Task Unit Bruiser. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Leif is one of my brothers. Guy wrote the book Extreme Ownership with. So that's Leif, Charlie Platoon. And when, when he was on that first podcast, we talked about a bunch of things, but one of the main focuses of our conversation was some of the brothers that we lost. Mark Lee, who was the first SEAL killed in Iraq. We talked about Biggles. Ryan Job, who was gravely wounded in Ramadi and who later died after complications from a surgery to repair those wounds. And finally, we talked about Chris Kyle, who was also in Charlie Platoon, was the lead sniper and point man, and who ended up writing the book American Sniper, which was you know turned into a very successful movie. And Chris, as you know, was senselessly murdered as he tried to help out a, a fellow veteran. And on that podcast, we didn't talk in any depth at all about Mikey Monsoor who is another one of our brother SEALs from Task Unit Bruiser, who was also killed in Ramadi. And if you don't know, Mikey was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor after he smothered a grenade with his body in order to save three of our other teammates. And one of the reasons I didn't want to focus on Mikey during that podcast is because Mikey was in Delta Platoon. As opposed to Charlie Platoon. Charlie, there's two platoons in the task unit. Charlie and Delta. And Charlie was... Leif was the platoon commander. And Tony Afradi, who was on the podcast as well, he was the, the platoon chief. And before I went and talked about Mikey, I wanted to bring somebody from Delta platoon on the podcast. It's a little bit trickier than it sounds because most of the guys from Delta platoon are still active duty and the ones that aren't active duty are they're not around i couldn't get get a hold of them or if i get a hold of them they they were busy or i i they were out of the area so it's just been hard it's been a challenge but i, I did want to wait and finally and today we're lucky because i got one of my one of my good bros here guy by the name of Andrew Paul, who was the assistant platoon commander in Delta Platoon, Task Unit Bruiser, SEAL Team 3. But I wanted to start off today by reading a speech that I gave at one of the ceremonies that took place when Mikey was awarded the Medal of Honor. And this was not the ceremony that took place at the White House with President Bush, which Actually, the entirety of Tasking a Bruiser did attend that, and it was awesome. But I gave this speech at a Navy ceremony that took place. I think it took place later in the day or perhaps the next day at the Navy Memorial in Washington, D.C. And that day there was a ton of senior naval officers in, in attendance, and basically the whole 
of the seniority of of the of the Navy was there. You know, this the chief of naval operations and the secretary of the Navy, and there was a bunch of other Medal of Honor winners there, including a couple other SEAL Medal of Honor winners. And it was a a very fitting day, and it was a great honor for me to be able to give this speech. And here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, it is obviously very humbling to be here today, as it was humbling to be on the battlefield of Ramadi with my fellow SEALs and the 228 Brigade Combat Team, the Iron Soldiers, and then the 1-1 AD, the Ready First Combat Team, which was formed up by our brothers from the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And it included such hallowed units as the 1st to the 506 Band of Brothers, the 137 Bandits, and the 38 Marines. I met Mike Monsoor when he checked into SEAL Team 3 as a new, highly motivated young frogman. As we trained and prepared to deploy to Iraq, everyone learned that Mike was an incredible person. He was gifted at everything he did, hardworking, funny, and selfless. He was the ultimate teammate, the ultimate friend. When Mike died, a picture of him circulated in the news. It showed Mike and his platoon mates in the war-torn streets of Ramadi, shrouded in a mist of greenish-yellow smoke which was used to mask their movement from the enemy. That picture says so much. Mike's gun is at the ready, his face is calm, almost smiling despite the obvious chaos and danger around him. Ramadi at the time was the epicenter of the insurgency in Iraq, a city filled with peril. The hardened enemy was bent on destruction. They fought with ruthlessness, constantly on the attack with machine guns, mortars, grenades, and IEDs. Brave men died or were wounded every day. And every day, brave men continued to push forward into the fray. For those of us who were there, that picture of Mike captures all of this. In the picture, his brother Seals are nearby, but Mikey is out front. I have looked at this picture over and over again, and it speaks to me. As someone that had the pleasure of knowing Mikey as a friend and had the honor of serving with him on the battlefield, this photograph tells me a story. As I look at that picture, I hear a voice in a humble but confident tone. This voice says to me, I am Michael Monsoor. I am patrolling through the streets of Ramadi. It is a city devastated by war. Bullet holes cover the rubbled buildings. Burned out cars litter the streets. I am walking just behind my point man. I am ready. My eyes sting from the sweat. 
My gun and gear are heavy, but these things do not bother me. There is no comfort here, but this is the life I have chosen, and there is no other place I would rather be. I am Michael Monsoor. I pray and I believe. My faith is my shelter. My faith is my strength. Fear thrives in this place, but fear is no match for my faith. Faith conquers all. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Lord, protect my brothers above all else. You have made me ready to protect them. I am Michael Monsoor. I am far away from home. I miss my family. I miss my mother, my father, my sister, and my brothers. Everything I am is rooted in them. I want to hold my nephews and nieces again. I want to make them smile and laugh. But I am far away from home. Instead, I smile at the Iraqi children when we pass them by. When we encounter Iraqi families, I treat them with respect and dignity. I know the importance of family because there is nothing more important to me than my family. I am Michael Monsoor. I love my country, my fellow SEALs, and the men fighting alongside us. The men fighting alongside us in the streets are infantrymen, grunts. I know these grunts are not just soldiers and marines, but fathers and brothers and sons. I know because my father and brother were also grunts, proud marine riflemen. We are fighting a determined enemy, but we are strong. Our strength is our brotherhood. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines fighting together. A brotherhood bound by sweat and blood and tears. Together, we live in dust and dirt and filth and death. Death is everywhere. Many of my brothers have fallen. Mark is gone. But we fight on. For, for the men to our left and right, we fight on. I am so proud to be part of this band of brothers. I am Michael Monsoor. I am ready. Forged by faith and family. Molded by belief and brotherhood. I have lived life to its fullest. I have not looked back. I leave nothing but love. And I have no regrets. I am Michael Monsoor. I am the frogman on the high ground. And I have given everything for you. And that was the speech. And I did my best to share my thoughts about Mikey. And I'm honored here to have 
Andrew Paul with me today. Like I said, the former assistant platoon commander from Delta Platoon to share some stories about Ramadi and about Mikey and about tasking a bruiser and about himself and the lessons that he learned over there and how he carried those lessons to civilian life and the kind of challenges he faced there. So, Andrew Paul, my brother, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, bro. It's an honor to be here. And you know, the main thing, listening to that speech, I remember when you gave it. My hope and prayer today is that whatever I do here today, it honors the legacy of our brothers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll get, we'll get into plenty of that. But in order, and I hate to do this because everybody does this when they start like this type of situation. Mm. It's almost like a bar pickup line. You know, hey, where, so where are you from? Right. So uh, that being said, Andrew, so where are you from? Where am I from? I'm from New England, New Hampshire. <laughs> you know what? This is, we had Tony's. Tony was just on yep. another New Englander. That's right. If I don't get some boys from Texas on here, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start hearing about it. You got to be real hard to grow up in New England. Let me tell you, <laughs> yeah. it's cold. True. True. <laughs> so, so you grew up in New England, and and by the way, for those of you that just listen on the podcast, what do you weigh? One one fifty five. One fifty five. So the 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 image that everyone has of the big Navy Seal is not. First of all, it's not true. Their seals come in every shape and every size, and Andrew comes in the smaller size. <laughs> and uh, so, but how did you? Uh, so, so what? Would you? How'd you ever hear? How'd you hear about the seals? Like, what made you decide that that was what you wanted to do? Yeah, you yeah. know, I'm. First of all, I've, I've always been the kind of person that like tell me I can't do something, and I'm going to just show you. So, I mean, things like, oh, we're in high school, and someone says we're talking about like the Boston Marathon, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to run. Oh, you can't do the marathon. Oh, okay, watch this ran the Boston Marathon. Um, but, you know, probably saw a movie. Because, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of information out there about the SEAL teams. And so... Tell me about it. <laughs> right? I mean, even less for an old yeah, guy like yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't a lot of information. But somehow, you know, probably saw a movie, ended up reading a book. And then, you know, started to do some research and found... Well, first of all, I, outside my immediate family, um, uncles, grandfather, all served in the military. So grew up with that strong sense of uh, wanting to serve my country and uh, always had a sense of wanting to protect people who couldn't protect themselves. So I was drawn to that kind of line of work. Then began to read about the SEAL teams, and at least from what information I had available, it seemed like, hey, they were the best. So I'm like, all right, well, if that's the best, then that's what I want to go do. And that was was in its infancy as as a young kid. But then, man, I just got onto that like a bulldog, bulldog on a pork chop, and just, I mean, tunnel vision went after it. And you, you did you go to college? Did you already have that decision in your mind when you went to college? Oh yeah. Like, so you knew you were going to go to OCS. You knew all that. Did you? No. Did you do ROTC. I did ROTC. So the thing is, is that I didn't know. I didn't know anything. I mean, I didn't know about. I didn't even know what ROTC was. I didn't even know what enlisting was. I had no clue. No would no no exposure. I just knew I wanted to be a SEAL. So, you know, but we started looking at going to college, and I went down and I looked at Vanderbilt University, among others, John Hopkins, RPI, because I was an engineering major, and I knew nothing. And all of a sudden, I walk into this almost like job fair kind of style thing, like, welcome, check out the school, and there's this guy in uniform, and he's, of course, got a picture of, like, some Navy SEAL frogman coming out of the water over the beach. 
I was like, hey, what's this? Most son? realistic picture of all time. Right, because that's what we do every day. <laughs> uh, right. And I'm like, hey, what's this? He goes, oh, this is ROTC. I'm like, what's that? He goes, oh, well, you go to college. We pay for college. And then you go in the Navy. And I'm like, wait, you can be a SEAL through this program? He's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Big lie. Like, <laughs> they take like 16 guys a year. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, you can be a SEAL. Oh, okay, wait, let me get this straight. So I go to college. You pay for it. Watch this. I get to go in the Navy. And I can be a SEAL. Yep, I might sign me up. So that's how I found out about RTC. Recruiter, just straight truth from the recruiter. You got to love it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you can be a SEAL. Little did I know. So you get done with uh, college, get your commission, you do RTC, yep. and then you go to you go to Buds. Show up to Buds. That was funny. I showed up. So I asked the ROTC instructor, hey, um, you know, like, what's the process for checking in? Do I just, like, what should I wear? Oh, just wear, you know appropriate civilian attire Ugh. so I, I show up to the buds quarter deck in like a collared shirt walk onto the quarter deck and one of the most sadistic instructors possible happen to be standing there i walk on i'm like hey uh yeah, i'm here to check in like like the all-seeing eye just like <laughs> glances like you said what i saw checking into buds wearing that i'm like uh Maybe I should go put a uniform on. Yeah, good idea. Uh, run out <laughs> to my car. Back here in three minutes of your uniform, son. <laughs> right. Went on, put on my SDBs, came back, promptly got wet and sandy. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. SDBs, for you guys who don't know, it's like the uh, the high level uniform with all the ribbons and all that crap on it, and you got to you know you got to take good care of it. So when you take that and you wear it down to the ocean, and then you jump in the ocean and roll around in the sand, it's not a good deal for that uniform. The good news is there weren't a lot of ribbons on there yet. So, yeah, you yeah. had one ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and you end up going through Buds with Leif, right? which people know who Leif is, obviously, um, which is cool. And then you get done with Buds. And he, I mean, Buds is Buds. I don't yeah. really care about Buds. Yeah, some funny Leif stories, though. <laughs> Talk about my bro. So I got, I got pneumonia in Hell Week first time through, so I got rolled back, start over. So, um, and, then, and then Leif transferred in so Leif was our was our class leader and so me the Delta platoon commander who mm -hmm. one day you'll hear from uh, and he and I we all went through buds together but they were both lateral transfers in so they were senior to me in rank right they're already like JG and, and a full yeah. lieutenant and uh, so there's games in buds right like you're, you're trying to win so you know we were we were wise to the games already to try and win and Leif if you know my brother is like life is black and white with my brother Leif. Okay, so I'm gonna hear about this one. But he, so you know, it's right and it's wrong. And there's like, and so you know, we're like, you know, buds, sort of like, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And if you get caught, you ain't trying hard enough. I mean, so and there's an element of that in buds, uh, obviously not completely. But so you know, we're we're pulling all kinds of games, and, and his boat crew is losing because we are just we're cheating to win, and. um He's getting so pissed. Like after the race, like after class, he's like, "Hey, you got." And then he finally wisened up and started playing the game. But. Yeah, that, that thing about you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That's sort of a, that's sort of one side of buds. Right. And what was cool is when I went through buds, they actually told us like these couple instructors were like, "Listen, that's a little saying. It's not true." Right. They, and they they actually said, "If you're cheating, you're cheating yourself." Right. Which I was. Hmm. And then obviously, then they start saying, "Look, if you got guys that are cheating here." 
to get through this training? Do yeah. you really want them in the, in the teams with you? No. Right. I don't want a guy that, that has to cheat to, to complete a run or a swim. Negative. Yeah. I mean, that, there's a difference between, like, cheating, like, cutting off the run yeah. versus, oh, yeah, like, you're sure. in competition, sure. you're knocking the other guy, whatever, you know, yeah. competing. Hitting a guy in the face with a paddle, just that type of thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you get done. So you yeah. get done. Because you were junior, when you get to the t- you went right to Team 3, right? Right. Yep. So you get to Team 3, but you don't get to go on deployment with Team 3. They hook you up with being a boat unit commander. Yeah. So no one's going to know what that is. All right. Talk so, about that. So the deal was, and in, in, this has changed throughout the years, but like when I checked into Team 3, there was this brief period of time, whoever was in charge at the time, decided that third O's in a platoon was a bad idea for officer development. So there's no more third O's. So basically I was faced with being a talk jockey um, or – going over to the boat team and at least being in charge of something to get some leadership experience. So I went over to the special boat teams, which is part of Naval Special Warfare. And ultimately when they deploy, they deploy as part of the task unit and or the task group. And it, it's all integrated and part of, you know, visit board, search and seizure, maritime operations, such as uh, leadership interdiction, maritime interdiction operations. And so the boat unit, which is special boat teams, um, is run essentially at the, at the, leadership level by SEALs. So the commanding officer of the boat unit, the executive officers are, are SEALs. The boat dead OICs, the Mark 5s, although we don't have Mark 5s anymore, um, are, are SEAL officers. So look, as a brand new officer, at least I had an opportunity to deploy in a in a combat zone to lead men and and to work with my SEAL brothers who were conducting operations in the Northern Arabian Gulf. Yeah, and just an overview, I'm just going to sum this up as quickly as I can. So obviously SEALs work on water a lot. And we, we drive our own little boats, our own little, you know, 12-foot Zodiac boats with 55-horsepower motors on them or 35-horsepower motors on them or whatever. But the bigger boats, we don't we don't drive those. So anything, you know, you see any of those bigger boats are, are driven by these guys that are called, they're now called SWIC, Special Warfare Combatant Crewmen, which are guys that, that's what they do. They're boat drivers. Right. And they do, they insert and extract us, you know, drop their, drop their boats out of, various aircraft it's so it's it's a legit job and they and they, that's what they do and so you were in charge of uh, a group of those guys took boats on deployment right to the arabian gulf and did what you did over there right um the reality is is not the it's not the dream for the seal young seal officer to be that to do that but it's a good like you said it's good all of a sudden you're in charge of something real you know, right. you're, you're when you're out on the water and i tell people i, I used to tell people this when i was in the teams i say listen when you're on the water it's a real world op because because if something goes wrong when you're in the water i mean yeah. first of all you can drown you could that's and you can get lost there's all kinds of bad things that can happen so if you don't plan right on the water it doesn't matter if there's enemy or not you got a big giant enemy it's called the ocean and it yeah. will kill you if you're not squared away and i think actually that's one of the things that makes seals good is that we work in the water and the water is one of the toughest enemies you can come so up so unforgiving it's unforgiving yeah so that wraps up that you come home from that deployment yep and now you are still at SEAL Team 3, or you go back to SEAL Team 3, I guess, technically. Yep. And now we form up, and you become the Delta Platoon Assistant Platoon Commander. Checking in. Awesome. Working for the Delta Platoon Commander. Who You you guys were bros already. We are bros, yeah. We've known each other for years. Went through buds together. And Leif. So you guys must have been pretty stoked on that. It was cool. It's kind of like getting the band back together, you know? <laughs> and, those, and look, those two guys had just come off of not the greatest deployments either in terms of yeah. a junior officer seal, right? Because they were deployed and they were the assistant commanders and they were getting stuck with 
not so fun work. Right. You know. Right. So th- we were stoked to be all right. They were stoked like, hey, now we're the OIC. We're not going to be the guy stuck back doing the paperwork. And um, we were getting the band back together. And then when we found out you were our task unit commander, it was like, oh. Because we, we all knew we were going to be in the platoon together mm-hmm. and the task unit together. We didn't know who our TU commander was mm-hmm. going to be yet. Mm-hmm. And then we were all, it was rumor, rumor, who we going to get? And then we heard this guy Jocko was coming over. We're like, oh, ho, 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 Did yes. you know who I was? How did you know that? I only knew who you were through them, like, or other oh, guys. Right. Like, this, oh, Jocko, badass dude. This is going to be awesome. Right? Because, like, we already had an inkling that, like, if, if this dude was going to be our TU commander, we had our best shot at getting into combat. Mm-hmm. Although we had no idea what was about to happen. Good assessment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, your, repu- your reputation was great, but you were coming over in that case from being the uh, Admiral's Yeah, aide, I was coming right? from being the Admiral's aide. Yep. yep. 13 months with, uh, with the Admiral, which was a, a, a rough tour in terms of things that normal SEALs Same thing, don't right? like to do. That's right. right? And, I, and, and, you know, for instance, I mean, just, just straight up wearing a uniform every single day. Which right. is so, so people don't so people understand in the world when and I don't know what it's like this moment today when I was in the teams when I was at SEAL Team One SEAL Team Two SEAL Team Seven we I didn't wear a shirt right <laughs> like right. no I'm a 35 year old man making money doing with a family I'm not wearing a shirt at work like oh I'm in my office cool I'm not wearing a shirt I'm right. wearing shorts and a pair of jungle boots right that's it so I do that for my whole life right since I was a kid since I was a 19 year old kid when I got through. So I now I go to be the admiral's aide, and I have to wear a uniform every day. Not just one uniform. I have to wear khakis, then whites, then blues, and you're just in this constant uniform. And and seals are not good about uniforms. They're just, they're just not. It's not one of our strong points. And so so that's one of the things that made the job not very fun. But there's but, a good lesson there, right? So here, I mean, everybody knows you as an incredible leader, awesome seal. And yet, for this period of time, you had to do this job that was not particularly fun. It's kind of like, you know, I had to go over and be the, the SEAL at the boat unit, right? But, dude, life is full of things like that. Yeah. And when you were part of the team, no matter what, you do it to the best of your ability. Yeah. And you did an awesome job as the Admiral's aide, not necessarily what you wanted to do, being a trident-wearing frogman. So I got an email from one of the assistant platoon commanders in Charlie Platoon mm-hmm. a, a year ago. And he said... Hey, bro, I'm gonna go be the aide. Yeah, I know you're talking. About it. <laughs> and so he, I just saw him, and he was laughing. He goes, "Your email back to me. You said this is going to be very hard for you because you're not good at this kind of thing, and I was pretty good at it. So you're gonna have to work like extra hard to make this happen." And he was laughing. We were both laughing. Yeah, because you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. And he's not a guy that is all over the 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 minutia. Of course, he did a great job because he yeah. stepped up his game. But yeah, when you get a task with something, you do it and you do it the best of your ability. Right. And and you know, just to continue that story because I have to say this, it was a it was a pain in the ass job. It wasn't fun for me, but man, did I learn a lot? Did right. I understand a lot? Did I get to know all, all the inner workings of of the community because I was there with the guy, you know, with the yeah. admiral that was in charge of all the seals. I was with him for 13 months. I mean, all day travel, you know, wake up PT. We were just I every meeting, you know, right. so it was a it was a great learning experience for me, and I was appreciative. And he was a great guy. He's a great guy, yeah. and he really cared about the SEAL platoons, which is which is awesome. When a guy puts the number one priority, he'd always talk about okay, what's what's the SEAL platoon need, or how does this affect the SEAL platoon? Yeah. So 
then we got in, but now you're in your first workup, right? Mm-hmm. Going through workup, getting getting your game on. Awesome. Best time of my life. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. Anybody who's in the military right now on active duty teams, if you're listening to this, man, just enjoy it, man. Enjoy it. I mean, there's other things in life, sure, but like you can you just you can't replace that time. It and there's stupid stuff you deal with, yes. But trust me, enjoy this, man. Yeah. You won't find it anywhere else. <laughs> Nothing like that. Awesome. Yeah. Do you? What do you? I I talk about this sometimes. So one of the scars that you get from the military from the SEAL teams mm-hmm. is if you go if you like to shoot weapons still. Oh yeah. And you want to go shooting. Mm-hmm. You have to pay for ammunition. <laughs> and ammunition is expensive. And, and I'm serious. I remember times in the SEAL teams where, I mean, your your thumbs are getting, your thumbs are literally getting sore from reloading magazines for days and days. You're shooting all the all the bullets you could possibly ever, ever, right. ever want to shoot ever. You're going to shoot them all in a week or right. two weeks. And so it's it's so fun. Yeah. It's so fun. And, you know, for us, and for those of you that don't know, so you go through a workup prior to going on deployment, which is now you're working together for the first time. This is when I'm getting to know you guys. You guys are getting right. to know me. We're all getting to know each other where the whole the whole unit is coming together as a team. And this is where the real bond forms mm-hmm. and you're doing super hard training. You're, you're living together. You're working out together. You're working together. You're partying together. You're eating your meals together. It's just a 24-7 rock and roll awesomeness. And and that's how that's how it that's how you get to know these guys. That's how you get to know your 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 team. Yep. So me, Mikey, and another guy were the new, were the new guys in that platoon. One other guy. He's still on active duty. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just yeah. saying there was only three new guys in that platoon. Yeah. Yep. Dang, I forgot yep. about that. Yeah. In our in in, yeah. in in Delta in Delta. Yeah. Needless to say, Delta and Charlie were of slightly different dynamic. Yeah, you guys were you guys are a different dynamic. Uh, different, th- just like people have different personalities. Platoons have different personalities, and teams have different personalities, yep. and they can morph and change. But nonetheless, uh, both great platoons, both yeah. great platoons. Oh yeah. And so it was only you and Mikey and one other guy. Yeah, I know who the other guy mm-hmm. was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the that, tick. Th- you guys were only, the only three new guys in yeah. there. Yeah. So it can be a harsh. It's 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 a harsh environment to come into when you're when you're a new guy in a SEAL platoon. But I, so I'm with so I'm with Mikey, and we're doing we're just I don't even think we're doing mobility, but we are driving out to the ranges, mm-hmm. and he's the uh, he's the turret gunner, mm-hmm. right? And I say something to him like, "Hey, when we're approaching a road, you know." You look at your field of fire, and if there's no vehicles coming, you know, say clear right. Mm. And so he he did it once, and he's clear clear right, you know, kind of quiet. And I was like, hey man, you got to sound off. The driver's trying to drive. He's got a, he's got radio on. He's he needs to know what's going on, man. You need to sound off. Yeah. And the next ro- intersection we got to, he's like clear right. And he said it super loud, and I I thought to myself, wait a second, is he is he, you know taking the piss out of me is he is he being sarcastic with that yell right no and no he was not no i told him to yell he was like okay we i will yell i will yell (laughs) and that's that's the way it worked and the other one of my other favorite stories about mikey was and this is another like new guy related story (laughs) was so you go through 
CQC training, close quarter combat, close quarter battle, whatever. It's basically shooting in small spaces, taking down buildings, that kind of thing. And it's it's a it's a there's there's a lot of instructor focus oh yeah on the mechanics of what you're doing so it's a very it's a very mechanical thing and if you if you're making mistakes it's not going to work out good for you and and by the way as a new guy there's tough scrutiny but the reality is it doesn't matter if you're new or not like they are watching everybody everybody's getting watched you could be a third platoon guy and get canned from the platoon for a safety violation and you can get a safety violation in two seconds out there in in a half a second yeah it doesn't take much so and and what they're trying to do is they're trying to put more stress on you, right? Because they want to, they want you to handle the stress, so they stress people out by just you know these little minute details of what you can do right and wrong. And to be honest with you, some of them don't matter. Some of them you're like, okay, that doesn't matter. You and 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 I know they don't matter because they they morph over time and they'll teach you know one phase they'll be teaching one thing and then if later they'll teach the phase they'll teach another thing and then later they'll teach another thing. So it's not. There's a million different ways to do it. Yeah. And you could argue this one's better, but there's a million different ways to do it. But they do. They pick whatever they're going to choose for that block of training is what you're going to do. And and if you want to sit there and argue with them, oh boy, it's not going to work out good for you. <laughs> no, it's not. So what I told all the new guys in Delta and Charlie Platoon, I said, hey, listen, when the instructor cadre is telling you to do something or they're yelling at you or they're getting on your ass about something, you just look at them and say, roger that. You guys got it? Roger that. And these guys are like, Roger that. And <laughs> that's the best attitude there. you want to have, right? Because what, what do you want to be, a new guy? That's like, hey, no, I don't agree with your oh. tactics there, person that's deployed you know, overseas times. 14 times. Yeah. No, you don't want to be that guy. You might think you're right, but no, this is what you, no, that's not what you want to do. So I told the guys to say, Roger that. So we're going through the training. The training's great, and we're doing really well. Our task unit's doing great, you know, but still guys are, guys are making mistakes, whatever. And finally, the master chief, and I'm, of course, for like Tony and I, we're friends with all the cadre guys because they're all our bros from being in the teams. And one of the, the, the leader guy, he comes up to me and he's like, hey. He's hard, by the way. Yeah, this he, guy is he's, he's hard. He goes, hey, what's up with this guy, Monsoor? And I was like, I don't, what, what do you mean? What's up? He's, he's been doing a good job. What's up? He goes, every time I tell him something, all he does is just look at me and say, Roger that. <laughs> and I go, hey, brother. You know what? He's doing exactly what I told him to do. I yep. literally told him the only thing I wanted wanted him to say to you guys or wanted anything you guys to say to you guys was roger that and make it happen. So when we were out there, there was another platoon that was there at the same time. Do you remember this? They were in, and I, I'm i pretty sure the chief got canned from the platoon. Yeah. He, safety violation, and there was some, and there was that talking back going on, right? Like, hey, I've got three deployments under my belt, and, you know, there's a degree of humility in that roger that response, for right? Sure. That's for what, sure. it's like, it's it's roger that, I'm open to the correction you have for me. Yeah, for sure. And so, and these guys, you know, he, him, so on the platoon, and you know, there's a balance there, I mean, he's leading his platoon and taking a stand for, you know, and being in charge, but at the same time, like, there's a humility and a respect in that response, and he was not doing that. Yeah. And I'm telling you, like, he screwed some things up and the safety review board. I mean, I remember holding a safety review board for the chief of that platoon. It was yeah. not our task unit, but it, 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 they do not play around. No. And, and that's the way it's supposed to be. That's right. Because it's intense. And what it's people intense. don't get is that you're trying to recreate the intensity of combat as best you can. So yeah. they're creating high stress situations as stressful as possible. And like you said, sometimes creating elements that aren't necessarily real, but just to, overload you with a number of things you have to process under pressure yep. and then are you going to make good decisions under pressure 
And that right there is what translates to combat. Good decisions under stress and under pressure. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right, though, about that humility piece. And that was our attitude going through. Right. You know what? I mean, between me and Tony, I don't think there was... I'm just trying to think if there's any instructor cadre that was putting us through. Right. You know, like there were yeah. some guys that were, in this, sure. you know, in this, but it, was, it wasn't like there was someone that was just, you know, had tons more experience than the two of us. Right. And yet we, you know, both Tony and I, hey, Roger that. Yeah. yeah hey, sounds good. We'll, we'll make that adjustment because you know what? And it's great just having Tony on the other day. He was just saying, look, you can, I'm learning something new all the time, learning that's something right. from the new guys. And that's the attitude that prevailed through the task unit. Not of, hey, we're the best. We don't have to listen to anybody. But, hey, we're going to work as hard as we can. We're going to be the best we can. But we're, we got open minds and we're ready to learn yep. at all times. It's a fine line between confident and cocky. No doubt about and, that. And, and being humble. You can be confident. You can be sure. And you can be humble and respectful and open to learning new things. And, man, you may be surprised at what you learn. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So what else do you remember from workup in terms of, hey, you're a new guy, you're checking in. You know, Tony and I told some stories of what it was like when we were checking into Team 1. It, it was when we were new guys, it was a very rough environment to roll right. into. Yeah. Did, what did you think when you got to, you know, being a new guy? Well, <laughs> I, re- I remember like literally day, first of all, day one that I was checking into the platoon space. I got in, like, the combo to the platoon space, right? And I went in, and I'm, I'm brand new, and uh, so I'm going to be protective of my platoon, you know? So I go in. I'm walking out of the platoon space, making sure the door is locked behind me because, you know, other platoon guys go in and just destroy another guy's platoon space or whatever. And I'm walking down the hallway, and um, our LPO, who is goes down to the door, and he, he doesn't have the combo, right? And he goes, he goes, hey, hey, what's the combo to the space? So I'm like, I gave him some... Wise ass Did remark. you not know him? No, I didn't know him yet, oh, right? How'd that work out it, for you? It was hilarious. Like he, <laughs> he he goes, Hey, what's the combo to the space? I'm like, Hey man, I can't give that to you. <laughs> and I didn't know he was the LPO. And he goes, he's like, he goes, he goes, I'm the goddamn LPO. What's the fucking combo to the platoon space? I'm like, Roger that. Three three one together than two. You know? And I'll proceed to walk down the steps. I'm going, Oh God almighty. Well, I am to the team. just I just met the LPO and it was not on good terms. Oh man, that's awesome! And then he and I turned out to be good friends. But um, I remember we're out doing land warfare training, and this is like where you know you're cutting the metal, like you said, you're getting to know each other, and you know the guys in the platoon also are trying to figure out with these new guys, like, all right, what have I, what have we got here? What can we rely on? You know, and uh, so one night I, re- I remember us doing a little bit of boxing, and it was <laughs> forced boxing, new guy on new guy, <laughs> you know. And uh, survival of the fittest. Oh, my. dude! It, and then, and, t- and then, and then it, at times it was just three on you know every man for himself, and it's just like your head's on a swivel, and it's Mikey, the tick, and me, and we're just wailing away, and it's just going, and it's hey, who's going to continue to fight, basically, yeah. right? And dude, oh, well, everything. You know, I'm an officer, and these two guys are just, you know, obviously wailing away. But I'm like, hey, man, I'm gonna just fight to the bitter end, and it was, it was pretty awesome. Hey, did you do jujitsu before you got? Because I did. you had just enough. I did to make it that you could hold your own oh. when I would when I would do the officer kumites. <laughs> yes, I did do some, and you know, to keep in mind, the, where did the, you train? On the East Coast when I was in high school, oh. and I got and I got into Gracie jujitsu like 
literally like I was already training when the first UFC yeah. ever Me came too. out, right? And yeah, so was it was pretty cool. And so then that was always a big shocker for people because you were you were by far smaller right. than the other platoon officers, and yet you had that jujitsu. The jujitsu. And when you have the jujitsu, you didn't have a lot either. What were, no. you, were you even a blue belt? I don't even know. You, that yeah, I had you a were belt, you were probably you like know? a high level white belt. But I, but to be fair, like at the time, it was all very new. Like the world of MMA today is. Oh yeah, totally different. Oh, totally, totally different. different, as you know. But. At the time, like I mean, I even went to in high school with my with my instructor who was a who was a teacher at my school. He was into it, so he and I would train like five in the morning mm-hmm. before school. Me versus him, much larger man, but we would learn jujitsu, and then we went and did seminars with Hoist Gracie mm-hmm. um, in upstate New York. We would drive, and uh, it was cool. Like I got to get out of school and go and train again. This is just proof that jujitsu is so good because he would. I would make these. These officers, like we meet at five o'clock in the morning, and I'd say okay, and I would train with everybody. But then I'd say okay, now you, t- you two, fight mm-hmm. to the death, <laughs> <laughs> and they would just get after it. But he, but he was he was one hundred and fifty pounds. He's going against guys that are two hundred pounds. You know, they have him by fifty pounds and taller than me, too, and taller, right? and and so. he would just you know, there's, you know, it just doesn't work. You know, you yeah. gotta you gotta know that jujitsu. Yeah, and I'm not gonna and I'm not gonna say that I wail. I mean, these are tough guys. No, these are seals, you survive right? though. But that's right. That's right. Like they weren't you, tapping you, me out. You know, you, didn't you usually tap them? I usually choked out a certain guy <laughs> who didn't like that very much. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard, yeah. man. Yeah. Jujitsu is a humbling thing. Yep. But you know, and and the thing at that time because they were bigger than me was more about energy conservation, right? Mm. And so, like, I mean, I would just let them wear themselves out, and then they'd try and get things on me, and then I'd just sneak my way around there, buddy. <laughs> also remember you volunteering for the taser. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So, you so, actually had an attitude, like, you had you look like, oh, I can ha- I'm going to handle this. Like, no factor. What, you want to tase me? Bring it. That's right. You, you, don't, you don't see the guys on Cops when there's a big, tough, crazy guy all on PCP and he gets tased, he rips the taser out and throws the thing and he just keeps coming. That's what Andrew Paul had to look. <laughs> like, I'm going to just go, you going to tase me? Bring it. Let's go. I mean, hey, I'm a new guy in the platoon, right? I mean, I got to earn my spot, right? Yeah. And so some, somewhere, somebody had, actually it was the LPO, he had, he had one of these things. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And, and I'm gonna tell you what, like it had these like two modes: the one where you could shoot, or you could like put it right up to the guy, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, "Hey, let's go shoot him!" He's like, really? I'm like, "Come on, let's go!" <laughs> and then like the whole platoon, like yeah. everybody, like met down in the back cave, and um, there may be a video floating around somewhere. <laughs> this one had the winter barbs. If those of you guys know what a taser is, like the oh, bar, like yes. the, the winter barbs are longer to get through the get, sweater, get through that yeah. down coat. Yeah. yeah. And um, so when, of course, he was. Like, what were you in a t-shirt or just no shirt? I was in a t-shirt. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, wait, wait. how'd those winter barbs work out for you? <laughs> so it's like, there's like, oh, they're getting ready to do it. And they're like, oh, wait, wait. And, you know, these are my guys looking out for me. Appreciate it, guys. They're like, oh, wait, here, here, put this iPro on. Oh, that's a good idea. Right. So put some iPro on. And then like, like, it's got a laser on it. Right. So the laser, I mean, you, if you see the video, like, like you can hear guys going, oh, like guys are wincing. <laughs> like nobody's been tased. Like nobody knows what's going to happen right yeah, now. Right. Yeah. Boom. So this thing comes out at like 45 degree angle and one like goes into my sternum <laughs> and the other one goes below my belly button. And, uh, all right. So I'm like instantly yeah, over. All right? that, all that thinking he was just going to just rip those things out. He went rigid and thank God we put a mat down. Yes, there was a mat. Because he went rigid straight and fell like a brick. Just yeah. 
boom, yeah. nothing. And then just <laughs> so it so clearly, and I remember this too. Like it hits you, and like it hits you in that in that spot, and like your hands go to grab. Like you've been stung, or you've been hit. So my hands, my hands get like three quarters of the way there by the time the electricity freezes the body. <laughs> so my hands are kind of like stuck in front of my chest and my abdomen as it attempted to grab the spot. So I go over and. Um, all right, they turn the thing off, and then um, they go to get these things out. Somebody's got a pair of pliers, and and the barb I remember that you know hit it's my good when you need pliers to to dislodge the, the so like the it went into the muscle like because like I remember it ripping and coming free but not free and it was but it was still beneath the skin yeah and uh, and then it just like just rip it you see this is the teams man mm-hmm. this is what makes the team so fun yeah. One day you show up at work, you, you volunteer to get tased, and you're going to get some. The best thing you can do is just volunteer in a situation like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and just be like, come on, let's go. Yep. Bring and it. They, and then the guy, oh, okay, right on, you know. Yeah. Well, you did the right thing. Uh, I'm sorry it didn't work out too well for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it worked out great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we get word. We get done with our workup, and now it's time to go on deployment and um, get on deployment. And we found out, what, two weeks before. You guys were on leave mm-hmm. when we found out we were going to Ramadi instead of where we were originally supposed to go, which was in Iraq. But we knew, I mean, I knew Ramadi was going to be the uh, the best place to deploy to. And we show up over there. And what was cool, I thought about with uh, with that deployment, is the way we task organized. And every basically every leader got their own element. Yeah. Yeah. And put you guys... It was like, oh yeah, you know how you've been working for this, and we've been all what? No, you're going out on your own. You're you're in charge. Yeah, and that was uh, that was awesome. And and that what made me feel good was that when we were in the workup and we made you guys run operations, even though you were new guys, and made you put yep. you in pressure situations and put you in charge of ground force commander while you were, you know, most troops didn't do that. Right. But, we were, but I knew that there was a possibility. And furthermore. What happens if, you know, your platoon commander gets killed? What happens if I get killed and then you're the guy? Yep. Then you got to be able to step up and run stuff. And so we did that through the chain of command. And and we did, I will admit to this, we made sure that we had crushed the workup. And then it was like, okay, we've dominated. Okay, now we start training the new guys up on how to lead. And that was oh, yeah. that was important too. Because you want to do well in the workup. You want... Because that's where your reputation as a task unit comes from—is how well you do going through these various training blocks. Well, that's why we earned earned the spot to be able to go to Iraq, right? Because yeah. the thing is, is that some guys are going elsewhere, yeah. and and you're all vying. Look, I mean, you're all vying because you want to go to combat, mm-hmm. and some guys are going someplace else, not in Iraq, and um, you know, I hate to say it, but that's not where any of us really wanted to go. Well, nothing I hate you to know? say about that. If yeah. you're in the SEAL teams, you want to go to war. That's, that's right. There is to it. That's and right. We all wanted to go to war. That's what we were fighting for. We were competing. There are mm-hmm. three task units. We were competing as a task unit to get top spot to the most dangerous place, yeah. and that's where we want to go. And that turned out to be Ramadi. Now, by the way, on that workout too, just from a leadership perspective, I don't know if you remember. You know, not everybody made it through the workout. Um, yep. There were guys who were cut loose, um, safety issues, not stepping up, not leading, right? Pushing that leadership opportunity down to the junior officer or whatever, and not stepping up or doing something unsafe or just not having what it took, and um, you know, and you know, just from a leadership perspective, you have to be willing to make that hard decision. And reality, and I know, you know, you and Leif have talked about it, when you've given everybody, that guy, every opportunity, when you've evaluated it and you've kept notes and you've tried to train and you've tried to correct, it's not a hard decision, mm-hmm. right? 
Oh. Yeah, and actually, the the Commodore. I don't know if you were there, but the Commodore asked me. We were on deployment, mm-hmm. and he goes, "You know, hey, hey, Jocko, this is in front of everyone." He says, "You know, well, I shouldn't say everyone. It's in front of the leadership." He says, "Hey, how are the guys that were in workup maybe weren't performing up to par? How are they doing over here?" And I was like, "Sir, they're not in this task. They're anymore. not here. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> they they didn't make it. That's right. They've been removed. That's right. So yeah, that's a great point. And again, it's a hard thing to do because you, because you're really." You're really wrecking someone's life. Well, think about it, right? So this is a guy who is who. So there's a guy who's an officer, right? So you're, I mean, we didn't really we kind of glazed through it, but it's hard to get a spot to go to buds as an officer. Yeah, it's very competitive. So this is a guy who's an officer who got a spot to go to buds, made it through buds, which is hard. Um, made it through SQT, got to a platoon. This this guy is not a slouch physically. No, no. You know what I mean? Like this is not this is not some loser. You know, this is a guy who no, made a great American, right? Patriotic. That's right. Person. That's right. A great guy who stepped up, who made it through something that many, many other men could not make it through and had to make a hard decision, um, you know, on your part with the Delta platoon commander to not have this guy continue with us. And so if that can happen, even within the SEAL teams, any of those of you guys who were listening, right? I mean, don't you think that's also possible that within your organization you might have to make a similar kind of decision? We also have to make that decision in the SEAL teams. Yeah. We're not exempt from making that decision. Yeah, and also very much like the civilian sector, um, you know, there's HR. Basically in the military, there's HR. There's there's human resource department. You can't just walk and say, I don't like this guy, I'm going to fire him. That's right. No, okay, well, what have you counseled him? Has you do paperwork on him? That's right. Does he know that? Have you verbally, have you written it? It's all these things. That's so right. we went through that whole procedure. Yep. And, you know, if there's an extreme case, of course, you can you can make it happen, but it's going to cost you a little bit of political capital. Mm. Because honestly, if I'm your boss and you come to me and say, hey, I want to fire this guy, and I say, okay, why? Well, I don't, I don't, you know, he's not doing his job anymore. And I say, okay, did you counsel him? No, not yet, but I want to fire him anyways. That's going to cost you some political capital. Yeah, you, I, I'm actually looking at you going, wait a second, why right. didn't you train this guy? Yeah, you as a leader, why yeah. didn't you step up and train this guy? What, what are you doing? Because that can be a cop-out, right? Hey, if I'm too lazy to train mentor, right. then you're copying out as a leader. But if you've done all those things as a leader, and you can really document that and see that, and the guy's still not performing, then the next leadership decision is time to part ways. And that really is, I mean, that really is one of the, the best things about the SEAL teams is, is when you're raising your guys up, when you're, when you're teaching guys what you know, and you're saying, hey, man, this is what you need to do. Hey, bro, here's, what, here's the way this works. Here's what you did over here. Here's what you should do. Yep. You know, that's just, that's your, that's your legacy. That's what you're leaving behind is, is, hey, this is what I learned, and I want to teach it to as many guys as I can. That's what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So if you're, la- if you're not doing that, that's jacked up. Yep. You know, that's jacked up. And it's the same thing in the civilian sector. You know, here's a good one. Uh, I was working, you know, we work with companies, and I was working with a company the other day, and, and they got a guy who's sort of, you know, oh, well, well, maybe he's not the best mentor, right? But he wants to get promoted, of course, because everyone wants to get promoted. So this guy wants to get promoted. And they're trying to, they, they haven't had luck saying, look, you got to be a mentor. You got to lead. You got to be a better leader. You got to raise people up. And uh, I just, you know, talked talk to the, the boss and I said, well, ask him this question. Yeah, you know what? I definitely am looking forward to promoting you. Give me the three names of people that you've prepared to take your position. Right. Goose eggs, right? Yep. It's going to be goose eggs because yep. he hasn't done that. That's right. So that's a key component. You know, you definitely want to. You want to be, as a leader, you should be looking for your replacement all the time. 
and I with 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 Leif and with the Delta Platoon commander, I wanted those guys to be able to do my job. And that's my whole goal. And I wanted you to be able to do my job. Right. And and I'll tell you, by the time we went on deployment, they, everyone pretty much could do my job. So that that was success for me. Because guess what? That allowed me to do on deployment. Look at look up and look out and figure out what we're going to do that's next right. and all that other stuff. So that should be your goal from a leadership perspective for sure. And as you just pointed out, when you get to a situation where you've done the coaching, you've done the mentoring, you've done the counseling, you've written, you've set the expectation, you have a person that still isn't cutting the mustard. You got to go. Not a hard decision at that. And point. you have to be loyal. People get mixed up too because there's a loyalty component. Because mm-hmm. hey, you form this relationship. We just talked for an hour about this big relationship with all these people. Well, guess what? You have a relationship with that person that you're about to fire too. But then the question becomes: Are you going to be loyal to that individual, or are you going to be loyal to the team because you're team. hurting the team? That's, you have, right. you have that's to exactly the team. right. It's the team. Yep. So that's that. We went on deployment with a strong bunch of pipe hitters. All right. So we get on deployment. We, you, you guys, we, we kind of, and this is again, this is something Tony and I talk about. We were task organized, and we changed that. We changed it on a fairly regular basis. Okay, right. you know what? We this area is getting hot. We need more guys over there, and we would just kind of. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. There's a lot of work to be done. There was a lot. A lot of bad guys. Um, when you when you look back, and you're kind of so now you're on your first combat deployment. What was the thing that struck you as? Damn! Like, okay, this is what. Because I'll tell you, people ask me that, and I, like the first firefight I got in on my first deployment to Iraq, and honestly, I was like, okay, I felt like I was a hundred percent prepared. I agree completely. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. Hey, guys, ship, you know, it's yep. just very simple, very straightforward. So some guy said to me one time, and this is an outside guy, and said, he goes, because it seems to me that in the SEAL teams, you guys do stress inoculation really well, and so. I would say yes, because that's, that was exactly my same. First firefight I got in, I was like, no big deal. Yeah. And, you know, look, you know when the rounds are close, right? <laughs> like, you know what that sounds like. And they're, and they're really close, and it's no big deal. By the way, it's not really very loud when they're shooting at you, right? I mean, you hear a certain sound. Um, but then, of course, he's fire maneuver, and it gets a little bit loud. But that's awesome. It's just like every drill we've ever done. And it was no big deal. It was just it was almost habit at that point. You yep. knew exactly the maneuver, so no big deal. the the first The first time I went out in a Humvee in Ramadi, so keep in mind, like you said on the introduction, when we got there, guys were getting IED'd and killed every single day. Every day, the message traffic came over, and it was KIA, you know, IED. So, first Humvee ride I go out in. And I'm looking out the window. And by the way, like you can't really roll these windows down. It's not like you can. You don't want to roll these windows down. No, by the way, bulletproof windows. So you right. Don't, you want to keep them up. Right. And you know, so like you actually can't shoot back if you want to. Right. The only guy who can shoot back is your turret gunner. And for the first, like I would just say, minute and a half, I was like wincing. I was like waiting for this clack to go, boom. You know. And I, and then finally, I was like, you know what? There's nothing I can do about it, and I literally let it go right then. So th- that was that. That was like that's a strong memory. Like I remember, even for all the training, and again, the first firefight was no big deal. And um, but driving down in a Humvee, sitting in the back, completely helpless. I mean, you have two choices, and life is a lot like this. You can sit there and worry yourself away about it. Well, is is it this intersection? Is it this intersection? Or just go, you know what? Here's the deal. I can't control it. So I'm just going to be ready. So when it's my time to bust out this door or do whatever we got to do to do an immediate action drill or whatever, I'm ready to do it. And the rest of it, you just let go. 
you let go because anything else is not effective. Yeah, you you're not you're not. Yeah, it's not only just are you worried, but now you're you're actually doing things bad. You're Correct. actually being negative. Uh, you're you're right. thinking about things that you shouldn't be thinking about, and it's not helping you. It's not helping your team. So I like that. Just to just to kind of sum up what you said. You were in Ramadi for six months. You were scared for about a minute and 30 seconds. Yeah. And after true. that, you're like, all right. And I think that's, that's the attitude that I think that's the best. I hate. I don't know if this is the right thing to say or not, but to accept the fact that there's things you can't control that you cannot control and that one of those things is, you know, an ID, a sniper bullet. Yep. Um, I mean, and now well, there's things that you can do to influence because guess what? We do training. We prepare. We're keeping our eyes peeled. We're t- taking routes that we know have been cleared to the best of our ability. We're, we're, when we're on the street, we're moving. We're moving from cover to cover. We're doing everything that we can. But guess what? It doesn't matter. That's you right. can do everything right. and doesn't matter. Yep. You can still get blown up. You can still get shot. That's the way it is. So if you sit around and just think about that all the time, it's just going to drive you crazy, one. Yep. And number two, it's going to make you do your job worse because yep. you're going to be less aggressive. And I think you got to stay aggressive to stay alive. You you want to oh, be yeah. aggressive. You oh, want to yeah. be, you know what? Yeah, we'll go make that happen. Oh, they're, they're, do I want to sit in the vehicle right now or get out and get out and get some ground? I mean, that's just the type of thing that... It's a mindset. It's a mindset yep. that, that wins. It, that's it. It's the winning mindset. And if your goal is to win, then you have to recognize that certain thought processes are not effective and they take away from your ability to win. And, you know, I see people get worried about stuff, that kind of thing, right? So um, you just you, you take a step back and you I want to win. Right. A guy said to me one time, hey, uh, do, you think, do you think fear is a, is a useful um, emotion? I thought about it for a second because I mean, I've heard lots of different people talk about fear and you know, this and that. And you know, I would say for maybe I'll change this one day, but right now this is where I've come to on fear. Um, maybe for the caveman who's walking through the jungle and they get attacked by the saber-toothed tiger and that fear, that fight-or-flight response is enough to make him react in a moment in order to avoid being slashed by the tiger. But other than that, fear was not effective in battle because you do not make good decisions when acting in fear. And you have a better chance of survival, you make better decisions, and you have a better chance of winning and defeating and crushing the enemy when you remain calm. When you do the OODA loop, right? Mm-hmm. Observe, orient, decide, act. Yeah. Yeah, I've got, I get asked, to, I've obviously get asked about fear a lot. And, you know, I always say, look, Fear is th- fear is not a bad thing because it's the thing that makes you go okay. I need to be ready. Right. It's the thing that makes you rehearse. It's the thing that makes you say okay. Because and for me, the again, the fear wasn't about the fear of getting killed, getting blown up. The fear was always about I want to. I don't want to do a bad job. I don't want to make a bad decision. That I'll tell you, you're in a leadership position. That is the heaviest yeah. fear that you have. Is I make a mistake. My team does something that doesn't doesn't bring credit upon us as a unit. And by that, I mean, doesn't do a good job. Like, you, yeah. you're just, I, I don't even know where that comes from. It's just, want to do a good job, and the fear is, hey, I hope I don't do anything that gets my guys hurt or killed. I hope don't yeah. do anything that's a bad decision that makes, that does, that hurts us strategically as a nation. Yeah, Those are the two fears that I think make you rehearse, make you practice, make you reinforce, make you aware of what's happening, but you can't, what you can't do I mean, for me, fear uh, fear is, makes me aggressive. Like, oh, I think this guy's gonna gonna do something to me. Cool, I'm afraid of him. Cool, I'm gonna attack him. I'm gonna kill him. You right. know, I'm gonna take him out. I'm gonna do something. You know, and I, I actually see that time. You know, I see that in MMA too. 
where when you see someone happen to somebody where they get a little bit they get a little bit rocked or something if they if they let that fear make them back off and go into a defensive mode it's exactly what you just said if it makes you into a defensive mode yep. it's going you're going the person's going cuz man you can smell that that's right you can smell that so when i think the reaction to fear is like oh i'm afraid right now cool, I'm going to attack I have to attack. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't feel comfortable about where the troop is moving right now or where my squad is moving right now. I don't think it's a good thing. Cool. I'm going to attack. I'm going to take some high ground. I'm going to maneuver. That's why that's I healthy. Think, yes, it's that's healthy, healthy fear. That That's healthy. But you're also trained and prepared mentally for that kind of thing. Most people, when they start acting in fear, they start making poor decisions. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? So, absolutely. So in that sense, it's like, hey, get over your fears because you have to recognize that when you're acting in fear, you'll have a less desirable outcome than if you can get over it calm down sip you know observe oriented side act yeah. you know no doubt about it all right what about what about just plain leadership challenges i mean here we are stressful deployment yep it was it was the most stressful deployment that anybody had had up until that point in iraq yeah um and even talking to you know the vietnam guys this was a stressful deployment yeah a very stressful deployment in the amount of combat that was happening well urban combat happened things happen yeah. so fast yeah uh, so but, but from a leadership perspective what did you was there anything that you didn't expect was there any lesson that got confirmed yeah so and it's funny because you know over time in the deployment you really mature um even in a short amount of time and i'll, and I'll give you a quick a quick story so it was it was one of my last ops before i left country and there was another unit that had come in to kind of partner up with us. And um, we went and did this op. And so the officer in that unit, who's a good friend of mine, by the way, um, was, it, was, it might have been his second combat op, right? And so I've been on, I don't even know how many at that point. And uh, so we went and did this operation, and uh, it involved some Army units. And uh, so we're sitting in this position. And um, so like classic blunder the army guy who's sitting there um is on the rooftop and he's smoking a cigarette like like the classic world war ii sniper mm. victim smoking a cigarette yeah. trail of smoke going up and uh i mean this is a classic i mean single sniper shot shoots him and it it just i mean it misses his face well let me put it this way it took his earlobe off Right around cracks into the wall behind us. That's it. Immediately, everybody just like blah, like just unloads firefight. Right, and uh, so we're calling a medevac for this guy because it kind of it still cut him pretty good. And um, trying to figure out if there's going to be any more fire, or whatever the situation is. So, so this guy's like, well, I'm like, hey, so time to call the QRF and get out of here. He's like, well, you know, I think I'm like, you think what, dude? Wh what else do you think is possibly going to come from this? And, you know, I mean, I probably would have thought, hey, maybe we can still get something from this. If it was my first or second. Right. But it was just clear. Like, I mean, at this point, I mean, we've already we've already got a lot of guys hurt on this deployment. We've already lost Mark and um, a few other guys. You know, Biggles has already been shot at this point. So um, you have to weigh like what what more are you going to gain? I mean, first of all, this guy just this sniper just got a bead on this guy. I mean, and by the grace of God, he is still alive. And we've shot like, so what else is going to happen? I mean, they're either just going to set up and get a better position or get another shot, but they certainly aren't going to do anything. We certainly aren't going to see anything that they don't want us to see. 
at this point. So the battlefield is lost. I mean, this op is uh, it's over. It's it's time to pull trucks and go. So anyway, the army came and busted down the swamp with the fighting vehicle. It was awesome. I mean, I love the Bradley, Bradley fighting vehicle. Yeah, um, but you know, that's just sort of like a quick. It's like obvious. It's obvious to me at that point. And on a Monday morning, comp, you know quarterback 10 years later as i'm explaining this like anybody's listening can go well yeah obviously time to go right but you know what you're in that position and guys are still trying to get after it and there's still things going on out there you might think well maybe there's still something we can do here yeah and by the way the there was other times where similar situations happened and different decisions were made and they worked out great yep you know and so i think your overall statement is like you gained perspective right over time and you were able to look at things from a from a better perspective and from a higher altitude for a lack of a better way to say it you were able to understand what's happening on the battlefield more and that's definitely something that if people are listening and it's something that they want to become aware it's it's something that you can actually act on because that perspective it can be gained through time and experience but it can also be gained by detachment and saying, okay, what am I really doing here right now? Yeah. What are we really going to gain? And you can make a faster progress down the line to have to make good judgment calls based on not just experience, but just on knowledge and, and, and trying to capture the right perspective at the yeah. right time. Plus a big tactic for, the, for those guys was slowly de- evolving and, and happened uh, after we left. So is there anything else that you start that that you learned again that you didn't expect or that was useful for you from a leadership perspective yeah so you know i found myself in a position a lot of times of kind of stitching the keeping the platoon stitched together you know because in an intense situation guys start to have different opinions about things you know they do indeed yeah and so um so on this deployment i was not the platoon commander Right, my good friend was the platoon commander, and when you're in a position of leadership, you're making a lot of hard decisions, and not everybody always agrees with the decision that gets made, and so a lot of times the role I needed to fill was to back my platoon commander and continue to keep the platoon together behind the platoon commander because mm-hmm. he he had he was tasked with making some hard decisions. So um, sometimes it was you know sometimes you know so look I would just the analogy I would give to you is that. You may be in a role in a company, in an organization, where the best thing you can do to be part of the team is to help keep the team on focused for the mission. And that yeah. might mean you know, spending some time with one or two guys who are over here uh, uh, having a disagreement about the decision or which way things are going. Yeah. And, and truly, one of the best ways that you end up having to do that or doing that is, number one, you build the relationships with the guys right. so they know and trust you. Number two... Your platoon commander is got a lot of stuff on his plate, right? And so, one of the easiest things for him to cut short is the guise of, of explaining, "Hey, here's why this is going on. Here's how why this is going to." So, you as the intermediary said, "Okay, right. I know what he's doing. I know why he's making this decision. Let me explain this down the chain of command." That's right. And that's so helpful. And, so helpful. And when you've got guys in the platoon or any organization, a high performing organization that are really strong-willed and have strong opinions and, and, by the way, are intelligent and can make really articulate points as to why they don't agree with something. <laughs> you know, again, my role in that, in that situation was to ensure that mission success continued to happen, that we were still effective as a unit. And that meant me kind of behind the scenes 
trying to keep keep some guys on board. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'm sure people have noted this already, but when you said there's these different people inside of a platoon, I mean, just if you listen to the podcast that I just w- did with retired senior chief Tony Afratti and you, you guys' personalities are are very very different, very very different, and that's just some of what you get in a SEAL platoon. And you know what? It's not just some would get in a SEAL platoon. It's some of what you get in any organization. That's right. There's no clones. There's not people being turned out. They can have the same background. They can go to the same school. They can have the same level of experience. They can be totally different people. That's the way it is, and that's the way it is in the SEAL teams, and that's the way it is in every organization. It's part of why we're so good, right? Because you got guys that think differently, and they look at problems differently. Yes. But I, I like the fact of what you're saying is, you had to be, you found yourself in the role of, okay, you know what? I got to make sure that the guys understand where the platoon commander is coming from. With the guy that if there's something that actually makes sense, I got to bring it back to the platoon commander and say, look, I, this isn't one of the guys, you yep. know, complaining about something. Here's the legitimate point that's being made. Right. And then you guys can have that discussion. Maybe brings in one of those guys and says, okay, well, tell me what you're talking about here. And then you guys can move forward and come up with the best possible plan. But yeah, as a peacemaker, for all practical purposes, is is what's is where you what you end up being, and um, you know before I, what the one other peacemaker is needed because there wasn't a lot of peace over there, not a lot of peace. <laughs> and, and, and one of the stories I think that little Mikey story here that kind of shows you the level of violence that was happening in Ramadi. So. I came to visit because uh, I was I was on the other side of Ramadi and and the guys from Delta first a small section of guys from Delta and then all of them ended up on the on the eastern side of Ramadi with the first of the five hundred six Band of Brothers awesome outstanding unit awesome. amazing guys to a man and with an amazing commander but so Delta platoon ended up over there well anyways. I had gone over to, to, to visit, go go do some ops with them and see what was going on. And when I showed up, you know, I showed up and and this was a few, this is probably like a month and a half in uh, because the guys had taken over some crappy uh, building and full metal yeah, jacket, full metal jacket and had built it out FMJ. So if you guys seen the movie Full Metal Jacket, that's a, a, a scene in the movie where these guys, these buildings are all blown out. Well, this building where... Not not just the SEALs, but a bunch of guys, Army guys, lived in this building, and it was all blown out, and it looked like this. It was awesome. It was awesome. It looked like Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> and when we first got in there, the first one, when we first went out there, it was dirt. It was literally dirt floors, right. just mosquitoes everywhere. It was, to- it was just horrible. And now some time had passed, and the guys, of course, you put SEALs somewhere, they're going to dial some stuff in. So, the CBs that we had yeah, were the, awesome. Yeah, the CBs we oh, had. Oh, my gosh. The CBs we had were phenomenal. And if we you don't know what CBs are, they're they're sort of the uh, Navy's version of engineers, and they're they're fanatically hard workers. And the crew that we had with us in Ramadi, that was that was we they were part of our task unit. They were just total hard chargers awesome. and bust their ass and make stuff happen. So they had, and the other thing, oh. that, the other thing you have to do when you're a CB is you have to learn to acquire things yes. because there's a lack of things in combat zone. <laughs> That's right. And so your good CB can come up with, let's call it, you know, 120 sheets of four by eight plywood. Right. <laughs> that our master, our CB master chief yeah. was awesome. Yeah. When so, we got there, dude, they had, they had these racks built out for us in this blown out, 
concrete building that had like shelves yeah, and stairs yeah. to go to the upper dude it was awesome yeah it was so they take they that's what they had done is taken and just built the like into these basically small plywood condominiums <laughs> in, awesome. inside full metal jacket <laughs> that's right. and I, I so i showed up there one time and you know we're hanging out and you know the platoon commanders give me a little debrief on stuff and just kind of tell me how things are going and then someone says uh hey did you see mikey's video and i go i go no and they go 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 see mikey's video and so um, i go okay so they go his room's back there and what does his room say on it oh man like mikey's palace or something yeah, like so that. so <laughs> i've got a great story about mikey's palace by the way so go ahead let's so, hear about mikey's palace so so the so the cbs have built the, these awesome plywood paradise for us and um so you know people sleep we would sleep at all different times right i mean daytime nighttime whatever because the obstacle was so intense and so everything was totally blacked out and i got like an odd sleeping style like i could well as a mole rat you know we have a slightly different cycle so mikey had a different cycle like everybody would be asleep and i would be awake i'd be like ah, i always could find mikey awake and Mike, so you go in, you go in, he was on the ground floor. And so you, you'd go down and it was pitch black and you had to like feel your way through it, all these bunks. And then you'd go down around this corner, down this hallway and you make a sharp right. And, um, and then there'd be this faint glow coming from Mikey's <laughs> palace. And so Mikey's bunk was the last one up against the wall. And there was like an extra, like three feet between his bunk and the wall, just the way that, like the way it worked out. And so he had like these tapestries that his family had sent him hanging from the wall. And, uh, and he'd have like poncho liners all hung out, blocking the whole thing out. And so it was all dark. It was like his little cave. And you go back in there, and uh, I don't know where he got him. But he had like extra pillows on his bunk. And like he had his laptop like, like rigged as like a TV screen if you always be watching movies. And he always had all kinds of gidunk back there. <laughs> so I go back in there, and I go in the glow from Mikey's palace. I go back in there, and then we just sit there. He'd go, hey, man, you want some of this? He'd have beef jerky. He'd have sodas. He'd have like ramen, ramen noodles, and he'd always have he had like this heating element, like ones like you plug into the wall. Yeah. He'd be like, "Hey man," and he'd like hook up the heating element, boiling water right there with some ramen. <laughs> I mean, I could if I ever I was hungry in the middle of the night, I could get down there to Mikey's house. I knew I could get some grub, and he and I'd hang out and watch movies and stuff. And uh, he was always up weird hours like me, and it was just cool, man. He had this, yeah, it was cool. Pictures, posters hanging on the wall. He had that thing Dialed. tricked out. Dialed, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so these guys are like, hey, have you seen Mikey's movie? And I go, no. So they go, well, go back to Mikey's palace and check it out. And so I make my way back there, same thing. You know, you're making your way back there in the dark, got the headlamp on, even though it's noon or something like that outside, but the place is blacked out. Anyways, I get back there, and I'm like, Mikey. And and he, he didn't know I was... At, that I was at Corregidor, you right, know, yeah. so he was just, he, hey, you know, kind of oh, like yeah. hop to or whatever right. in a very, I don't want to make that sound too extreme, right. you know, but he was surprised to see the commander, right? <laughs> but um, anyways, I'm like, Mikey, he's like, oh, he's like, hey, you know, and he's all chill. And I said, hey, let me see your movie, man. And he go, he gets a smile on his face mm-hmm. and I go, mm-hmm. okay, this, this must be interesting. <laughs> so anyways, he breaks out his camera. He's showing me the movie on the camera, right? But it's got volume and I'm sitting there watching it. And anyways, the, the movie is... It's a a big firefight going on. It's just there's it's just a big bad firefight. There's machine gun fire going off, and he's literally sticking his hand up with the camera above the, <laughs> the edge of a rooftop, and he's filming. You can see stuff getting shot and whatever. And uh, then the funny part is he brings the camera down. He's you know hiding in this rooftop, and he points the camera at himself. And the area of Ramadi that they were working in is a place called the Malab District. 
and like many things in the military it had taken on its own little life its own little legend the Malab district and Mikey points the camera at himself and he says it's the moolah <laughs> the moolah baby, moolah, baby. <laughs> and uh, so it was really funny and and he, I get done watching this and of course I'm still you know Mr. Big Bad Jocko and and I get done watching it and I go I go hey Mikey listen bro when you're out there you shouldn't be filming stuff you need to be on your gun I mean that's just that's just what you need to be doing you need to get on your gun and and you need to keep shooting you need to be putting down suppressive fire and he and he looks at me and he's kind of sheepishly you know because he felt bad and he goes he goes uh he's like hey sir i was out of ammo (laughs) 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 and i started laughing because that's Probably eight hundred rounds, of maybe seven, maybe yeah, more, probably maybe more, 1200. probably probably twelve hundred. Yeah, just a massive amount of yeah. machine gun rounds that he had gone through, and he had shot them all. That's what Winchester means. Means you had shot, you had nothing left. And he said, "You know, sir, I, sorry, sir, I was I was Winchester." <laughs> and I just started laughing. I was like, "Well, if you're Winchester, make some good movies, then I guess, my brother." He got after it. Yeah. So yeah. that's uh, another good Mikey story. So. You actually ended up going home early from deployment. Yep. And because you had another kid on the way. Yep. Gunner. He um and, and the thing is, is it's like, God, I mean hindsight's twenty twenty, man. You know, when when man, when this stuff goes like this, um m- we had plan we knew that that was gonna be the end of the deployment. And so I was like, all right, cool. You know, you just go back with the with the Advon for the redeploy. And so that was all part of the plan um, from day one, basically. All right, cool. Um, because my first son had been born on my last deployment. So as it was, and and by the way, so start heading back. Wife gives birth early anyway. So there you go. Two deployments, two kids, not there. Common story for a lot of military guys. Um, but for people who are not, you know, I mean, imagine like you're not being there for your for either of your kids. My wife, she's a trooper, but she was running out of steam. Um, so it was cool to be able to go back and at least try to be there. Um, but Gunner's always been in a hurry. So he came early. Um, and then, so yeah, went back, um, start handling the redeploy. And so by that, he means we're some guy comes home from deployment a little bit early to start basically preparing for us to come home, getting ready for all the administrative stuff that's going to take place. And Andrew was that guy making that happen. And then there was like, three other guys that like a week later came and yep. followed me too. So it was, it was, you know, near the end, but a tough, but a tough call anyway. And then, um, I mean, I remember where I was when, when I got the word. So, you know, I was back at the team and, uh, I was, I was actually chatting with Delta platoon commander, um, via a method that we use. And he, uh, I, so I knew they were going out and, um, and I mean, I distinctly remember going, all right, man, get some, get some for me you know and uh so i was home i got the call at like 12 30 at night um our time local and uh so i knew right away that it was one of our guys uh they wouldn't you know nothing over the you know over the phone specifically but i knew because i had just talked to our guys you know and i was like god almighty so i, I raced into so um, you get the call that just says come to work yep get to work and i'm like all right so and admittedly i'm a little frantic you know because these are my brothers you know and i'm not there that's really hard so you know you can have some survivor's guilt over that kind of thing you yeah. know um 
uh, you know, it seems like, hey, look, we got this. Deployment's basically over. Um, and go back thinking you're making a right decision, trying to balance stuff with your family. Um, and then for that to happen, uh, and, you know, he's one of my guys. He's one of my guys. And I wasn't there. And uh, that's hard. Um, you know, it's been almost 10 years now. And time helps to heal those kinds of things. But I had a lot of guilt over that. And um, so anyway, we kind of figure out what's going on. Um, I get the brief and figure out who it is. So um, start figuring out, okay, so now it's now it's a race for those of you that don't know. I mean, look, here's the thing. We live in a 24-7 news world. Um, and it's a race to notify the family before they find out through some other means. And uh, he you know, lives up in Orange County, so we start assembling a team. Um, and, you know, admirals and uh, commodores are involved. And uh, it look, this is the second guy. We have not lost SEALs in Iraq to this point, Mark and Mike now. So, um, uh, you know, it's who's going to go up and do the notification? And, I mean, like, I had to, like, dig my heels in. I was like, listen, this is my guy. I'm going. And it was at first, like, mm, and then I was like, no, 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 I'm going. And thank God I did that because, I mean, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, we're racing. We put put the guys together, throw the blues on. We're driving up. And, um, you know, look, when we, when we got to Mikey's family's house, um, you know, look, it, all they wanted was to talk to somebody who knew Mikey. And the other four guys that were standing there didn't know him, didn't serve with him, didn't work up with him, didn't deploy with him. And, you know, in this grand scheme of God's plan, I have to ask, you know, we pulled over before pulling up, the, uh, pulling up to the house and put on our blues, and I literally thought to myself, okay, th- we are about to give the worst possible news to a, to a parent that their kid is dead. And um, I remember thinking, you know, God, just use me right now. I don't know why I'm here in this timing, um, but just work, work through me. Just use me, you know. Uh, so, you know, we knocked on their door and... and um, you know, Mrs. Monsoor looked out, and she later knew, you know, that we, I mean, she took a few minutes to get to the door. She looked out and saw five men standing there in blues. Um, so that was very hard. You know, you go in, and obviously family is upset, and you're doing the best you can to keep it together. I mean, for me, this was my guy. This was my brother, and I'm standing there giving them the news and trying to keep it together myself. And, um, you know, they... The good news is, is that one by one, they sort of looked around and said, well, did anybody know Mikey? And I was like, yeah, I knew Mikey. He was mine. And uh, so they, you know, politely asked everybody to leave, uh, but wanted me to stay and just talk about the deployment, tell stories about Mikey, what he was like, what was going on. And, you know, I want to, uh, the Monsors are an unbelievable family, and I totally want to respect their privacy their Absolutely. private family um and they're just they've just been so amazingly humble and gracious through this whole thing and i just don't want to sit here and tell stories about th- about this right i don't want to do it um one of the things that the, the the only the only thing I'll I'll say about this again out of disrespect for the Monsoor family 
um, is when you just said about about um, you telling them what deployment was like. Well, in talking to them, one of the things that they said was their impression of the deployment. So, so like I said, and you guys have heard stories about Ramadi, and you can go and you can go on YouTube and just put Ramadi two thousand six, yeah. and you'll see what Ramadi was like. That's what Ramadi was like, and it was incredibly violent and crazy. And these guys, Charlie and Delta Platoon, were in the thick of it, in the thick of it, on an almost daily basis. And the reason I'm building that up is because the emails that Mikey had <laughs> sent home to his family were, oh, yeah, having fun, not much going on here. Right. Don't worry about me. We're just training some Iraqis. Don't worry about me. Oh, we're just, we're just uh, trying to work on the infrastructure. Don't worry about me. It's all good here. I'll be home in a little bit. Those right. are the kind of emails that he was sending home in order to make sure that his family wasn't worried about him. Right. And it shows you what kind of a guy that Mikey was. Um, so, so any, is there anything else again without, without going into your personal, you know, your personal interactions with this incredible family that you want to say, and maybe from the perspective of as much as I hate to say this, there's going to be other people that are going to do this job being this person that does the notification Is there anything else that you could give advice to people that have to do this job or, you know, if they, if that ever befalls people that are, we get a lot, Andrew, we get a lot of big, a lot of military guys that, that reach out to me all the time that are active duty that are doing the work and anything that strikes you as something that you learned from this experience. Here's what I learned is the worst thing I've ever done in my life and the worst thing. And combat itself was a piece of cake compared to this. I would love to go back to combat. Any issues or concerns or anything from my military service was completely centered around this. It is an extremely heavy burden to bear. So if you are ever in this position, I don't have any good advice for you. There's nothing you can do to prepare yourself for that, this type of situation. The only thing I could tell you is reach out to guys who have done it before. I will gladly talk you through it. Because one of the best salves that I've found for this kind of pain is hanging out with your brothers and spending time with them. Um, I will always have time for someone who's had to be a Keiko. Always. Call me. Let's go out. Let's hang out. I won't suggest drinking a beer, but if a beer is what you want to do, we'll do it. Um, but the bottom line is, is that just the intimacy of being around another guy who's been there is very comforting. And so, you know, when you go through a stressful situation like this, do not isolate yourself. There are other guys who have been through this, and um, and a true brother will be will be willing to take the time for you. I'll find the time for you, no matter what, no matter how busy I am. And so um, I just want to be a resource. Now I know that there's only so many hours in the day, but if you're going through something, if you've gone through something like this, reach out to your brothers. Find a connection to another military guy, because nobody can understand it like another military guy, and that's part of the stress of it. Part of the stress of it is, is that you don't feel like you can possibly explain what you're dealing with to anybody else. There's no way they could possibly understand and comprehend it. But another guy who's been to combat can. And we can sit in the room next to each other. Even if we sat there and said nothing, we would get each other. And so you got to reach out to each other. Do not isolate. 
that's that's great advice and actually one thing that's very interesting to me is that I get emails from guys and they're basically doing that they're gonna do that right now with us there's yep. some there's guys out there that are that are going okay yeah and and the message is yeah I mean the military guys that have been through this kind of stuff before again I was never Keiko I never even came home but for my guys you know that was another kind of another kind of misery I guess to just know you're just sending people home it's awful um, but yeah don't isolate yourself talk to your brothers find them and tell them what you're thinking about yeah and and this is awesome right because Twitter and Facebook and messages like this you know we can kind of reconnect you know we can kind of talk about doing some cool stuff together whether it's jujitsu or running a badass race or doing something to challenge you physically or mentally, we all can kind of give ourselves a electronic high five, you know, through something badass you're still doing today. And you know what? Here's the other thing too: transition, man, Ooh, man. So, 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 so we. So that happens. I'm home, and in February 2007, I get off active duty, and I. Go. So, so for those of you that aren't tracking the calendar here. Mikey died September 29th, 2006. That whole thing unfolds. We got home. I got home. I was the last with the last group to leave, and we left uh, Ramadi October 21st. Took us a couple days to get home, but now we're home. We get post-deployment leave. We reassemble. We do post-deployment kind of debrief type stuff. Then we get post-deployment leave. So now you're talking. It's December. All of a sudden, December, you know, October. It's November. It's now it's December, Thanksgiving. Now all of a sudden, it's December. Boom. And so not much time has gone by. It's been packed. In February, you're getting out of the I'm Navy. gone. And that war machine keeps cranking, by the way. So the guys are back. They're ready to do another platoon. They're doing pre-deployment work. Whatever, dude. Whatever. It just it keeps on cranking. And, and then poof. I'm out of the Navy, and uh, I jump right into the mortgage business because, you know, nothing like a natural transition from the SEAL teams and the battlefield of Ramadi to doing 30-year fixed mortgages. And it's and it's 2007, though, yeah. so you actually weren't doing fixed mortgages for 30 years. <laughs> the, the mortgage industry, for those of you that don't know, the mortgage industry in 2007 was a place where a lot of people were making a ton of money. And it was about to all come to a screech. I was not hole. making a ton of money. I would just like to add. I was brand new, right? So I leave this steady two-week paycheck, brotherhood, and a job I'd wanted to do my entire adult life at that point. And had it just come up with a great deployment and get into the mortgage. Now, I did that because I, I needed to be home. And by the way, as much as the struggle was to get out, and, and I really my heart was truly torn in two opposite directions. Um, man, I look back in the last nine, ten years that I've had the opportunity to raise and shape my two young boys to be the young men that they're becoming have been absolutely priceless. And, but you know, so I find myself February sitting in the quiet office of a mortgage office at like six thirty in the morning. Cause that's just how I roll. I got a key. I'm going to get in there early. I'm going to figure it out. And then nobody, you know, first guy's not showing up. It's like nine, you know, I'm in there reading guideline books trying to just, you know, I have no, I have no paycheck. I have no income. And so, man, it got rough. I started to struggle. I'm struggling financially, for one thing. I'm struggling emotionally. Um, 
I'm struggling in building new relationships and, you know, kind of like a little bit of a chip on the shoulder and a sort of a little bit of an attitude from combat to trying to build relationships in the civilian world. And that was tough. Um, but I mean, there were mornings I sat there quietly. And by the way, that picture that you talked about at the beginning of this deal, I have that hanging on my wall. I look at it every single day. And, um, one of the things that continued to drive me and for military guys who were listening, um, as corny as this may sound, um, the legacy of my brothers is what drives me. Um, the opportunity to help my fellow veterans drives me. Um, because, um, you know, doing mortgages, yeah, not super exciting, right? But I sat there quietly trying to figure it out. Um, I, I all, I'm, I got divorced. I lost a house to foreclosure. I sold another house. Um, there's a time when um, I looked over, my young son Gunner is uh, sleeping on the floor. I got no furniture in the house, a house that's days from, it's already been foreclosed and it's days away from the sheriff coming to say, get out. And um, that drives me. And I think about Mikey and the sacrifice that Mikey and Mark made, and it drives me because they made a sacrifice. And in some ways, this is, this is bad talk right here. In some ways, I beat myself up that I wasn't on the roof that day with Mikey because that was my platoon. And I came home early for my son. And then I think, well, if I had been on that roof, maybe it could have been me. And then there wouldn't be a father there to raise Gunner and to raise Tristan into the next generation of warriors. And either way, the sacrifice that Mikey made, he made that so that I could live. And I have an obligation to use every ounce of my ability to use my mind and my body and my drive and my determination to fight and kick and scratch every single day to honor his legacy, to build and to mentor young men, to help my fellow veterans and to make this country a greater country. And all of those things, the more I do, the more I feel like I can honor Mikey and his legacy. And to do anything else would be to slight the great sacrifice that he made. And so, Think of your brothers if you're in the military and you're out now and you're trying to figure out what. Think of your brothers. Honor them. Andrew, you and I were having dinner. Uh, actually, we were having dinner at the christening of the USS Michael Monsoor. Awesome ship. And you were going into that situation and you just kind of rattled it off just now like it wasn't no big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Your kid is sleeping on the floor because you have no bed, no furniture. You're, that, by the way, that that paycheck you've been accustomed to getting for whatever five years in the in the Navy is gone. Right. When, when you get out of the military after five years, you don't get anything. You right. get nothing. Right. So you have no paycheck coming in. But there's no salary in the mortgage industry. Right. So it's all 100% commission. Your son is sleeping on the floor right. because you have no furniture. Right. You foreclosed on one house. You short sold another house, and you're about to get evicted. That's your life at this point. Right. Not to mention, in the back of your mind or in the front of your mind, you got this thought that Mikey died and you weren't there. Right. How did you look at all that and shrug your shoulders, grit your teeth, and say, I'm going to kick this thing's ass. Where did you start? At the very bottom. I'd like to think I bounced because I hit so hard. 
never give up. The legacy of my teammates. I mean, here's the deal. I think about guys that are committing suicide today or thinking about committing suicide. And think about this. Do you want to give that nasty enemy even one more victory? Fuck them. I am going to win because I am not going to let them defeat me. And I look at my boys. I prayed a lot. Right? For me, I'm, it's my faith. And Jesus Christ saved me. So I keep fighting. And you know what? That's just never going to quit. Never. You are not done until you're six feet under. You ain't done. I will tell you, if I ever found myself in combat where I was shot and dying, and off in my own in Afghanistan or something like that, for example, I would take the glass grenade I had, pull the pin, and lay it underneath myself so that when the enemy came to try and get my gear, they'd blow themselves up because I am not done until I am gone. And even then, if you've laid the right foundation, the legacy you leave, the messages, and what you've done to help the next generation, that's it. I'm just never going to quit. Never. You can knock me down and I will get back up. You can knock me down and I will get back up. I will get back up. I will get back up. And obviously, well, for those of you that don't know, because you don't know Andrew, he did get back up. He absolutely got back up. He now runs a, a very successful business and is out kicking ass on a daily basis and taking names. And it's been, you know, a lot of this, you know, again, whenever I look at myself and I went on this big, little or I went on this big kind of tirade about how you need to mentor your people and all that and take care of your brothers well guess what you know where I was when Andrew was going through this shit I was working I was working he didn't call me he didn't and, and, and I didn't make myself available you know so you Go, go, you know, taking care of, of your friends goes beyond just when they ask for help. You need to seek them out and make sure that they're doing all right. Because I let him go, and that was that. He yeah. got out of the Navy, and it was bye bye. And keep in mind, I wasn't going to come and ask you because maybe I was a little embarrassed, you know, about how dire my situation was. So if you're a leader, just know. Just like kids who are going through buds, they're going to hide their injuries, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, I don't want to come to the guy who I respect and say, hey, I am flat out right now, bro. You know, so I'm just going to keep digging. And I know we've talked about it. You're like, man, why didn't you come to me? I, I don't, you know what? It wasn't in my nature to do so. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't the best decision. Maybe I should have reached out. But um, either way, I wasn't going to quit. Well, that's awesome. And it's awesome to see what you've done and see where you're at now like i said kicking ass and taking names and and raising two uh badass young men they're good boys man the next generation of warriors that's one of the things i've become passionate about i'll tell you you know when you get out and you transition it, it's hard because you leave this brotherhood you leave this common sense this common goal and you know you're fighting for freedom you're fighting for liberty and you're fighting for your brother and your sister your right and left and then you get into some job where you're sitting at a desk typing on a computer which is boring um so you have to look here's the deal you have to find a purpose behind what you're doing and mortgages like seriously jumping out of planes blowing things up shooting guns diving 
rebreathers, all, all high ends up to doing thirty-year fixed mortgages. I mean, wah, wah. I mean, how do you right, how do you get excited about that? Look, you don't you don't get excited about doing that, right? Let me be honest with you. What you get excited about is something else behind it. And for me, it's helping my fellow veterans. So, those who don't know, ninety percent of my business I do VA loans. Okay, so why? Because I want to help my fellow veterans. Nobody will take care of a veteran better than I will, and that's 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 my mantra, right? If 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 a guy goes down the street, he will not be taken care of better than if he comes to me because I am deeply passionate about helping my fellow veterans. And that's how I get passionate about the job that I do now. I find a purpose behind what I'm doing. And so you might be in some job now that you're out and you might be going, God, this sucks, you know, but find a reason behind it. It could be a small thing, right? Like there were jobs in the military that sucked. There were jobs, there's parts of every job that sucks. You just got to deal with it. That's life and find a purpose behind what you're doing. And then, and then I will just tell you, this is, a, this is like one of these secrets of life that I have found. Life is easier when you find a way to help somebody else. When you find a way to help somebody else, miraculously, your problems begin to go away. So focus on somebody else's problems and how you can help them. And all of a sudden, you forget about yours. And so find a way to help other veterans. I see guys, I see veterans today who are who have been blown up and lost limbs and have been in similar difficult situations. And they are make, they're doing fantastic because they've started organizations or leading organizations or deeply involved in organizations that are helping fellow veterans. And there it is. It's like this, it's like this miracle. You set out to help somebody else, and all of a sudden your problems just seem to melt away. So if you're struggling right now, you can reach out to me, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Just share your story. Connect. And then find a way to help someone else. And do it in a way that you're passionate about, man. I mean, I, I'm passionate about raising my two boys into the next generation of warriors. I'm, I'm passionate about, I mean, first, look around at the spineless cowards that society is raising today. Who is raising the next generation of warriors to keep America the greatest country on the planet? This generation that says that everybody gets a trophy. That you get a freaking graduation certificate when you graduate from first grade that's bullshit all right so you get a piece of coal and a kick in the ass that's right <laughs> you get something when you earn something and so raising my boys into hard young men to become gentlemen strong warriors men of character who will who will have a spine and stand for something that's what we need to do and those of you guys who have been to combat serving our military you know how to do that. If you don't have kids, find a way to get involved in local high school, maybe a local middle school, and set, be a role model and set an example for some young boys to be the next generation of badass American warriors who will stand for and protect this country and protect liberty. That's something to get pretty excited about. I get passionate about that. Yeah, that's something that everybody needs to get passionate about. And like you said, especially the veterans that, that no one understand that. And they know and understand and appreciate what real freedom is. That's right. Well, I think that's all we've got for tonight. Did you have any closing comments? I think you just about summed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, first and foremost, Andrew, thanks for your service. Thank you for answering the nation's call. And I appreciate what you did for me and what you did for the teams. Thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your lessons learned not only about combat, but about what comes after combat. 
And for those of you out there listening to the podcast and you want to keep listening to the podcast, you want to support the podcast, my brother Echo Charles is going to tell you how to do that. Before I tell you, I actually have a question. Yeah. This yeah. is a way lighthearted question compared to, you Let's know. Let's go. So when you go into the mortgage industry, yeah, and, you know, there's other people in the office as well. Like, what did they think about? Did they know, you know, your, your, your past? They find stuff? out, you know, but it's hard too, right? Because in the SEAL teams, we have, we have a quiet professionalism. And so one of the things that I've struggled with is, you know, Look, I'm, I'm certainly proud of my service, but I don't want to use my service and my background in the SEAL teams as a way to advertise. And there, I mean, there are douchebags in the mortgage business <laughs> who prey on military, dude. And, and they've got some great fancy marketing, but their heart's not in the right place. Mm-hmm. So relationships, little by little, it, it, it sneaks out, and it's fine if other people know. But no, I don't walk in there and tell people that, hey, I'm a Navy SEAL. I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. real style. Tony was just on it, and, yeah. and I don't know why we've never talked about this before. I've never talked about this before. But like anyone that actually calls themselves a Navy SEAL is like suspect. Right. You go, right. hey, how's it going? I'm a Navy SEAL. Or I was a Navy SEAL. It's just so, like you yeah. can tell immediately, you're going, wait a second, what's this guy's deal? Right, right. <laughs> just no. Right. No. Right. Exactly. But like you, like, okay, Jocko walks in. We meet Jocko, mm-hmm. for example, and he's, you know, whatever, he's Jocko. We're going to be kind of like, hey, are you a Navy SEAL <laughs> kind of thing? Yeah. But you, you're kind of like he's an everyday guy kind of thing. So you're like kind of like the guy in the movie who they show him working or whatever, and it flashes back to his past, and he's kind of the superhero, you know? You're like one of those kind of guys. Do they like... Do you think that they looked at you like that? Like, oh, yeah, you're just, you know, our guy, coworker right. kind of thing. But And then maybe one guy heard a rumor, hey, this guy is, you yeah. know, this this hardened warrior. And the other guy's like, no, no, he's no way. Look at that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's um, and that's how I'd prefer it. I mean, I'd rather be. Oh, them not knowing. Yeah, I'd rather yeah, be yeah. in the shadow. I mean, because, look, here's the deal. We, none of us do this for accolade. None of us do this mm-hmm. for the look at me. And the guys who advertise it, like Jocko was saying, they're suspect because they probably didn't really do it, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah. But I'd say probably one of the best compliments I probably ever got was I, I heard about a conversation that happened when I wasn't there. And this guy was like, hey, yeah, did you know that, that guy's a Navy SEAL? And the other person said, no, wait, that guy's, he's so nice. You know, I'm <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, good to go, good That's to go. what I mean. Yeah, I'd rather be, I'd rather be stealth like that. You, so know? you know what makes it even more interesting is, again, we'll use Jocko as an example. If Jocko kind of walks in a room and guys, you know, let's say a troublemaker guy, yeah. they're gonna look at him and be like, ah, I don't know, if I want to start anything with this guy. Big, he may Good or may guy. not have been a you know a team guy, but then you, you don't have that to look at you, right. you know. What are you but saying, not Marco? only, <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> and you know jujitsu though. Yeah. So to me, that down. makes it even more. Int- yeah, but that's all you need, really. Yeah. So it makes it that much more interesting to me, you know. And, and it's great, right? Because you know what, a lot of times, but. I would say more often than not, when we, if we were out as a platoon, guys would actually want to start a fight with a guy that looks like Jocko because they're they're looking to like yep. test themselves. Yeah. Whereas like guys, I mean, that would be a massive miscalculation. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like really end of life event, <laughs> extinction life event kind of decision. Um, and, and to be not to counter, I know exactly what you're saying, but like the the, the facts are. People don't mess with me when I'm out in public. Yeah, they just don't. But I know exactly what you're talking about. It's always some big guy, right. the tall guy, gets yeah. somebody coming up to him, and uh, and actually, you know, you and I talk about this too. For those of you who are on the podcast and you can't that are listening, Andrew doesn't look like stereotypical seal. He's 155 pounds. He's what? How tall are you? 
five seven. Five seven. So he doesn't look. He's not your stereotypical. Not your stereotypical seal looking guy. Now again, that the public would think. that the public would think. Because right. I, yeah. I was going to say, there's no stereotype, and some of the most badass guys are. They're every size. But this is something that Andrew said to me one time, which was, you know, he's you know basically people see me and what do they think? They think, oh, this guy, you know, he's just going to be a knuckle dragger and and he thinks everybody needs to be big giant. Uh, you know, head smashers, right? And the fact of the matter is, what, what I care about is, can you do your job? And can you do it well? Are you tough? Are you brave? Can you lead? And that's why Andrew, I, I he was like actually surprised. Like when he, when he finally told me, you know, he's like, <laughs> man, you know, I was kind of thought you might not like me, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm, you know, smaller and, and, you know, I don't look like a seal. And I was like, bro, it's not about how what you look like. It's about how you act. And can you do this job? Are you brave? Are you going to step up? Can you lead? Great example of leadership, right? Like, that's what you, that's what you, that was one point. So you focused on what was the capability of the person on your team, not what they look like. And, and some guys can do that, right? They can, they can go, well, you know, this or that. Um, but you were like, hell, hell no. I mean, this guy, he puts out, he can get the job done, he's leading. So, you know, who you're kind of like is um, Dalton. You ever watch uh, Roadhouse? Remember, Roadhouse? Oh, I remember. Yeah, when they're yeah. like, "Hey, I thought you'd be bigger." He's this badass bouncer with this right, beard. right. Is that a bad comparison? Will that get me killed? That comparison? well, he does. He does actually. Uh, you know, look a lot like Patrick Swayze. Here. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Very handsome. Yes. Yeah, I'd rather remain stealth. You know, yeah, and yeah. and and use that to my advantage. You know, um, and kind of remain thought as the underdog. You know, you won't see me coming. Yeah. My remember we were hanging out at your house, Jocko, and and, um, and Tristan said he goes, "Hey, who would win in a fight, you or Jocko?" And I was like, "Thanks, buddy," like, <laughs> right in front of Jocko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, "I'm gonna smash you later." <laughs> like, and uh, I go, "Well, I'm not stupid enough to start a fight with Jocko. <laughs> I will wait till he's asleep." <laughs> then I will. Yep. Uh, awesome. I'm glad we're on the same team, brother. Exactly. Yep. But yes. If you do want to support this podcast, there are some ways. If you if you don't know already, uh, we didn't talk about supplementation or many things that would require supplementation. But if you're into it, on it has the best ones. Common knowledge, I know. Ten percent off on it. dot com slash jocko. Ten percent off. If you need info on any of these supplements, like the literature behind it, all that stuff, it's on there extensively. If you want, ten percent off. Support yourself, your wallet as well. Also, when you do Amazon shopping, um, we have a click-through link on our websites, which supports the podcast, you know, when you shop. And, of course, subscribe to the podcast on uh, iTunes and YouTube. Leave a review. Leave a review. Yeah, yeah that's leave a, a review. Let, let me know what's up. Yeah. Let us know what's up. Yeah. Yeah, those reviews are helpful, man, because... Yeah, like if they're like, hey, Jocko, stop saying like, like all the time. No, I don't say like all right? the time. That's why. That's why. You know what I mean? So, yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> but, you know, prefer, yeah. So, yeah, leave a review, man, if you're in the mood. And then, uh, of course, Jocko's store. You can buy some shirts, some mugs, some rash guards, some stickers. Uh, we have women's coming out in three days. It'll be out. By the time this is out, it's out. Yeah. You're wearing women's those is shirts. out. Yeah. Wearing those shirts. <laughs> yep. I gotta um, say, I like the krill oil. I use the krill. Yeah. And I'm right. on yep. And I'm on the um I like the um 
the mush, what's that? The shroom tech. Shroom tech. Yeah. That is good. Getting to you go. through the workouts. You, you yeah. got yeah. the shroom tech on. Yeah, huh? I like it. Did I? Was I? Was I bullshitting? You? You're good to go. No. I like it. The shroom tech is legit. Yep. Like As it. is the krill oil. Yeah. Yeah. From yeah. The krill oil. I was. I was telling him last time where I started the krill oil, mm-hmm. and because I was looking where when I work out, I don't have strong, you know, sore joints. Mm-hmm. But I do have sore joints when I wake up. Mm-hmm. I just never thought about that when people say sore joints and stuff. You know, you just sore. Man, yeah. cool. All this. And my daughter would jump on my back to wake me up. <laughs> now I got to walk downstairs with this girl on my back. Take krill oil. Maybe three, four days later, no problem. I can get up. I'm walking down the stairs. Easy. Like noticeably, you know. Nice. So yeah, krill oil. Jump on it. A, uh, also on Amazon, got that. Get some of that Jocko White tea right here. Tasting good. You can step up your game with the antioxidants and a microdose of caffeine. Get you rocking and rolling. Yeah. And while you're out there, just go, ahead, just go ahead and grab yourself a uh, go ahead and grab yourself a copy of Extreme Ownership, the book that me and my brother Leif Babin wrote. And if you already have a copy, that's cool. Just go ahead and get one for your boss, man. <laughs> get one for your team, your mom, your dad, whoever. Hardcover digital. Or if you want to hear Leif and I talking for eight straight hours, get the audiobook because that's what it is. And also, if you want even more, come out to the Extreme Ownership Muster October 20th and 21st in San Diego, California. Leadership Conference will be breaking down the fundamental principles of combat leadership and teaching and talking about how to employ them on the battlefield in business and in life. So register and we'll see you there. Andrew Paul's going to be there, by the way. Oh, dang. I'll be there. Echo Charles is going to be there, by the way. We're going to be getting after it, so come on out. And as always, if you want to keep kicking it with Echo Charles and with me, we're all up in the interwebs, Twitter, Instagram, and even that Facebooky. We're there. Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And if you want to get Andrew Paul, go. The Andrew M. Paul. The Andrew M. Paul. Is that on Twitter? On Twitter. The Andrew M. Paul. So if you want to get the Andrew M. Paul, and you can hit him up. Facebook? I'm on Facebook. Andrew Paul, veteran advocate. (laughs) Well, there you go. Boom. Boom. Awesome. And uh, once again, Andrew, thank you for coming on. Thank you, It means a lot to me to have you on here, and I really appreciate you coming on. And now, to everybody listening... People in uniform, people in business suits, people in coveralls, people, everyone. We talked today about Mikey Mansoor. And I want to leave you with this. Mikey Mansoor was named after St. Michael. St. Michael is the warrior archangel that led heaven's army against Satan. St. Michael was known as the principal of the angelic warriors and was seen as a protector against the darkness. And in the Christian religion, specifically in the Anglican and the Catholic and the Lutheran churches, September 29th, September 29th is known as as Michael Mass, or 
St. Michael's Day. And that day, September 29th, 2006, was the day that our St. Michael, Mikey Mansour, was killed in Iraq, in the city of Ramadi, sacrificing his life to save the lives of three of his teammates, three of his brothers, three of his friends. And I would ask you this. When September 29th comes around, remember. And I would ask that while you honor the hero and you honor the warrior that Michael Monsoor was, please also remember that Mikey was a person. He was a smiling kid. He was a jokester. He was a determined man. A brother, a son, an uncle, a friend. And Michael Monsoor was a young man with hopes and plans and aspirations and dreams. Dreams for his future and dreams for his life. And in that moment of truth, he gave them all, all those hopes and all those dreams, he gave them all to us. Remember that. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko and my brother Andrew Paul.